Hey, what's going on, champs? I'm Erin Deliosa. Welcome to an Immigrant's Life podcast, my podcast about immigrants and immigration and everything in between. Thank you for listening and downloading the show, and thank you for supporting my dad. Welcome back, Immigrant Nation. Another week, another new episode. Every week, I will never get tired of saying thank you. Thank you to you all. Thank you for your support. Thank you for sharing the episodes. Thank you for your kind messages. Thank you for liking our social media and all the posts. Speaking of social media, you know where you can reach us at An Immigrant's Life. And you can also email us at animmigrantslife at yahoo.com. If you are interested to come on the podcast as a guest, yeah, just uh, holler at me and reach out and uh, we'll figure something out. And that's that. Now, let's talk about the episode. This week's guest bravely faced the crowd and told them that she and millions of immigrants belongs in America by controlling her narrative through the power of storytelling. This is an amazing, amazing episode, and it's very heartbreaking, yet very inspiring. So let's not waste more time. Without further ado, let's get into the show. Isa Dalawa Tatlo. Today's guest is a pharmacist, an author, and the founder of Mokana Press. Her passion is to give voice to marginalized voices, and her presence reminds us that God is with us. Everyone, please welcome Munashe Kaseki. Thank you for having me. What's going on, Munashe? Oh man, a lot. Uh, just got this book out, so I, it's so odd when I hear people say author because for the longest time I was pharmacist, and now more recently, like I get to add author to that, and it's kind of cool. Mm, it is cool, eh? I'm proud of you. Are you okay with being called an author now, or you're still like in that? Like oh yeah, no, disbelief. I I definitely I'm okay with that. I'm still in disbelief, but I I'm okay with that, and I I need to learn to introduce myself more as an author, especially since I'm uh, going to be transitioning full time into writing and publishing. It's just that I've done this whole pharmacist thing for a good ten years, and I was in pharmacy school for six years before that. So it's like all of my adult life has been like pharmacy, pharmacy, pharmacy. And then now all of a sudden I'm like, not anymore. Like I'm going to introduce myself with something different. So that throws me for a loop, but I'm definitely okay with it. And I'm, I'm getting a lot more used to it. That's good. There's no, what's that word? There's no, you know, when you're feeling like you're not worth it or you're feeling like you're not real. Like imposter syndrome. That's it. That's the word I'm looking for. Lots of that. <laughs> Lots of imposter syndrome. But I, I feel like with me, though, every time I try something new, like I always have imposter syndrome. I could be mm. great at it. I could be getting lots of great reviews. Though even if it's something I've been in, like I started off as a pharmacist. Um, my role right now, I'm a senior director of operations. So I've had to like move up the ladder a lot. Uh, my first manager role, I'm like, they have no idea what they're doing. And they're going to trust me to like leave these people. And then I did well in that and I got promoted something else. And like my first multi-site job, I I had to oversee 20 pharmacies, 20 CVS pharmacies in San Francisco. I'm like, not the right person, but did great. And like you move on. But anytime I go into something new, I don't know what it is. Like there's always a little bit of imposter syndrome there. 
I wonder and this why. is no exception. Yeah, that's so weird. And you crush it all the time anyway. And you know you're going to crush it. <laughs> yeah. That's weird. By the way, before we get into too deep, thank you for coming on the podcast. I really do appreciate it. Uh, thank you. I, I appreciate you having a podcast on a platform like this. Oh, of course, of course. Um, why don't you tell the immigrant nation where they can reach you and promote your book? All right. Um, so you can find me on Twitter. It's probably where I'm most active with the book. And it's Monashe uh, Loa-Kaseke. Loa um, or you can also um, find me on my website, www.monashekaseke.com. My book is called Send Her Back and Other Stories. Um, and it is a short story collection that features 16 immigrant women all of them Black women of color, um, all of them living in the United States. And it's just a mesh of stories of joy, of travel, of dating, but also stories of hardship and trying to figure out the U.S. immigration system and trying to figure out family relationships and your identity. But overall, it's just, I like to think of it as a short story collection of the human experience, especially the Black immigrant woman experience. Mm, beautiful. Let's talk about the book a bit later. I just want to get a background for the listeners. You were born in Harare, Zimbabwe. Uh-huh. Tell me about your version of Harare. Oh, first of all, I love how you say Harare. Not a lot of people can roll those R's that way. So <laughs> I get excited when I find someone who can roll the R's. Um, yeah, I grew up in Harare, Zimbabwe, and probably not the stereotypical um like Africa, you would think most people think of. I grew up in the suburbs of the city um, and it was in a neighborhood that was when Zimbabwe was still Rhodesia. It was a predominantly like white only neighborhood when they had apartheid. So probably not if you like saw a picture, probably not what most people think of um, when they think of Africa. But I also spent a lot of time in different places. My grandmother lived in the high density areas are what you'd call like the ghettos. I spent so much time there, like went to visit sometimes in the village. Um, but Harare to me, when I think of Harare, um, I think of just lots of personality, like people with larger than life personalities. I think of certain foods. I think of music. Um, and I just think of, I don't know, a really um, like joyful people. Mm, beautiful. You mentioned your grandma's area is quote-unquote the ghetto yeah like do you prefer going to the ghetto or you prefer going to the the city the suburb part oh my gosh when i was a kid and to this day like my favorite memories were always when i was in my grandmother's house because (laughs) we could play in in the streets like you didn't have those rules like because they didn't have yards big enough so we would play soccer in the streets with like these like soccer balls that are made out of newspapers that are then like wrapped with like rubber bands and and we would be out with no curfews um so we would be out until like you know 8 9 p.m and for us the sun sets at 6 p.m so that was a really really big big deal mm-hmm. um and she had like you know um you had all these street vendors everywhere so you'd always like get pocket money and like try to butter like for like sweets or something like with ladies that would that like were vendors and there's just so much more energy and and it felt like people are not as muted or as worried about like how they come across and all of this stuff and by far like i would be like the area is called juve i will be in juve any day over like being in bluff hill that's funny man i i hear that a lot that people are you know oh i used to go to my grandma which is like the poor area part but i love it there like 
because you said there's freedom. Yes, absolute freedom. So I can tell that you're an outside kid, but what type of kid were you? Oh, I was a really curious kid that tried everything. The moment I like heard about something new, I wanted to try it. I wanted to be on the volleyball team. I wanted to play tennis. I wanted to try out basketball. I wanted to be on the plays. I wanted to like join the dance team. I wanted to be on the debate team. Like I, and the moment I found out about anything, I was just a highly curious kid. Um, so I would so many times like step into uh, new things and experiment. And I don't know where this like imposter syndrome came from because I was never afraid of failing. And for the most part, when I tried something, I tended to be really good at it. Um, but yeah, I, I think the first thing that comes into my mind is just a really curious kid with a really big personality um, and just, yeah, wanted to know everything she could about the world. Mm -hmm. Was it nurtured by your parents? Um, I think so. I think my, I always tell the story about how anytime I changed what I wanted to be when I grew up, probably every two weeks, like probably most kids do. But the difference is my mother never told me that I could do it or I couldn't do it. She'd always just ask me questions. So I'd tell her, I want to go to Mars. And she's like, oh, great. How long does it take to get to Mars? And I'm like, I don't know. I'm going to go research that. And so she'd just ask me all these things of like, oh, what do you need to do to become an astronaut? How long do you need to study? How many people get to go? And then over time, you're like, my odds are not great at this. And I don't know that I want to spend that much time there and with the suit. So you come back and be like, mom, change my mind. Don't want to do that. I'm going to be an accountant. And she looks at me like, okay, what do accountants do? But she never told me no. She just asked me questions. And I think because she asked me questions, it just got me more and more curious and got me like it made it easier for me that now when I find out about something and I don't know much about it, I am more than happy to like find out anyway, because I, I got like my curiosity got nurtured a lot when I was younger. That's amazing. I love the story. At 19, you receive a scholarship to study at Drake University in yes. Des Moines, Iowa. Oh, yes. <laughs> Quite the widest part of the state. <laughs> yes. How was that? Oh, man, that was quite jarring because you have to realize that I'm somebody who grew up um, without the concept of being a minority. Like everyone around me was black. My family was black. My friends were black. You turn on the TV, the president's black. You go to the doctor, your doctor's like literally everyone around you is black. And so the concept of like race or even need needing to be different or to explain yourself just was just not a thing for me. Hmm. And then I land in Iowa and no one knows anything about Zimbabwe. And when they do think of Zimbabwe or Africa, like they'll ask you stories about like, did you have a house? Like they'll think you had a pet monkey. It's, <laughs> it, it was just the weirdest stories and like you're more noticeable. And I'm again, I was used to like walking into a room and like, oh, even if somebody was rude to me, the first thing I would think, like, some, I, it's, it's, if something happened and I felt like I had an interaction with someone who was mean, the first thing I, I think is like, they're kind of rude, like, or they're really impatient. But like, I never even thought about how race could play a part in any of this because mm -hmm. that, that had just had not, never been a factor in anything that I did growing up. So that was quite the learning curve and quite jarring to be, to go from being, from that stage to being um, a minority in a state where no one knows or understands or really bothers to know much about where you're from. Mm -hmm. But did you make friends easily? 
Um, I think I I was able to make friends easily is a very relative term. I think for almost every immigrant um that I talked to, the one of the awkward things about simple interactions um are one if they're inside jokes you just don't get, mm-hmm. right? Whether it's because people want to talk about I don't know Texas cowboys, you have no idea what that is. Like even though it's commonplace, people want to talk about I don't know like anything that's American, like your baseball, they have um, memories about watching Seinfeld. Like you don't know any of this, right? Mm. So coming in and everyone already has a baseline of jokes and like throwaway lines and you don't understand that automatically makes you really awkward. Like you, and it's, it's, it's hard to sort of be able to fit in there. But also secondly, like I got a scholarship but um, that covered my tuition, didn't really cover my room and board. I still had to try to figure out how to make things work. So I just didn't have a lot of money. And so when people were like, hey, let's go, I don't know, ice skating first. Not, I didn't, I hadn't even been in the coldest scene this now. I'm like, yeah, I don't know how to do that is one. And secondly, I don't have the money to do that. And it felt like you needed to have money in order to make friends. Because if people are like, let's go to the movies. I'm like, I don't have money for the movies. I'm not going to go. And then over time, people just stop inviting you for stuff because you always say no. But it's not because you don't want to go. It's just because you got to figure out how to eat. Um, so mm. I don't know that. I don't know that easy was the right word. But I did, like, over time find find little people who became my tribe. Um, I had like a few people who are like other international students, um, like, and I became close friends, but also some American students who were patient enough and like curious enough that, you know, over time they would invite me over to spend time with their families and I would learn a lot and they would learn a lot from me. Um, so yeah, over time, I, I, I definitely did make some really good friends. Some who are still really good friends to this day. Mm. Were you working? Um, so as an international student, I could only work on campus and I could only work 20 hours a week. And mom and dad doesn't send you money? Oh, uh, I sent them money. Oh, I, sent, boy. I sent them money. It was the other way around. Like Zimbabwe was going through like this crazy inflation time for most of the time I was in college. Oh, uh, yeah. That's when they were like bringing bricks of cash, right? Exactly. And it'll be like <laughs> $1 equals, I don't know how many billions of dollars, right? So then I'm like, okay, I'll send you $20. And all of a sudden they're like, trillions of dollars and like so no they were not sending me money i was sending them money so yeah wow that's crazy man doctor of pharmacy why did you choose to be a pharmacist um (laughs) i think similar to what i was saying about like me being like a curious kid i think it was always a process of elimination um to start i think because when you grow up in a place like zimbabwe where I don't know, the concept of doing what you love is not necessarily your number one thing that drives you. It's you do what's practical. So it's like, Mm. you want to grow up, you don't want to be poor, you want to have a decent salary. Like, what does that look like? And I always thought maybe I'd end back up in Zimbabwe again. So you start looking at what careers pay you decently. And that's like your first choice. And then secondly, I happened to be good in math and science. And universities tend to be a lot more selective um, for programs that require math and science. But my mom's a midwife, and I thought her job was her job was so dis- disgusting and so gross. So I'm like, I'm not doing that. I'm not going to be in the medical field. And then pharmacy was like, okay, fine. I guess it's not that disgusting. Still math and science, and I can make a decent living. So pharmacy it is. So it wasn't, unfortunately, it wasn't like one of those cool, like, I've always wanted to. It was just like, okay, practically, how do you make this work? And that's what I did. Um, 
yeah. And the, yeah, it's a good thing I ended up in operations because even halfway through pharmacy school, I'm like, I don't like this clinical stuff. I really, I don't like this at all. Um, and But I, I found out that I could have a different role where I could still be in the pharmacy field, but work in operations. So I really only worked as a clinical pharmacist the first few years of my career while I was like building that like backbone. And then after that, I've been in operations roles ever since. And I am more than happy in these roles. Mm -hmm. Pharmacist, do you guys mix the chemical to make the drug or how does it work? Yeah. Oh, man, that is a loaded question. I'm like, okay, I'm sure any pharmacist waiting, I like represent us well here. Um, so there's a few different things you could do. So I think what you're thinking of, that's definitely part of what we do. So um, if you think of, especially like in hospitals or like what we call compounding, if there are certain drugs, let's say you have a six-month-old who has a heart condition and they need medication for this child, uh, but it doesn't come specifically in that dose because, again, who's doing clinical trials for heart defects in six-month-olds? Like, you don't have good data on that. Mm. So your pharmacist is sort of trained to be able to figure out how to titrate that, how to mix, maybe crush a tablet, put it into the right liquid form into a way that, like, maybe you can give it, like, um, in, as a liquid that they could drink. So we definitely do parts of that. We make IVs. So a lot of times when you're like in the hospital and there are all these drugs that, you know, patients aren't conscious, your pharmacists are making a lot of those. Um, we also do a lot of uh, drug interactions. So if you're taking one thing and you want to know, does how does that work? If I also take this, um, we have to just know a lot of stuff. So we're, we're, we're your experts on that, on how drugs are absorbed, how your kidneys are going to process that, um, if you have liver failure, should you be taking that? Should you be taking something else? But think of us as the drug experts in the healthcare field. Mm -hmm. So theoretically, you mm -hmm. can poison someone without no trace. <laughs> theoretically. Right? I'm like, should we read back to that just in case someone in my life dies soon? No. I'm sure I could figure it out if I wanted. You know what I mean? Like, at one time I was watching, a, you know the show 2020? Yeah, uh-huh. And there's this lady, she was a nurse, and her husband was a doctor, and she was dropping cyanide in her drink every day, just a drop. Wow. It, she, it took, like, a while, but then one day the drop dead because apparently cyanide stays in your body. Uh-huh. I didn't know this. And... No one knew he was just dead, right? And I don't know how, but the one of the um, the detective was like, you know what? Let's check if there's something happening here. And they found out the cyanide in, in wow. there and they figured out. Wow. That is such a crazy story. But yeah, I, I'm sure that there could be stuff like, I think only pharmacists would be smart enough to be like, that will come up on an autopsy. Maybe let's not do that. <laughs> <laughs> Silly question, but yeah. does pharmacists study doctor's penmanship to learn yeah, this, we to have understand? To. Yeah, we do. It's actually, um, because I think part of people look at doctor's prescriptions and they say the handwriting is bad, and that's only half of it, but also prescriptions tend to be written in Latin, and Latin uh, shorthand. So when you're learning, like people look at that and be like, I can't read that. Yeah, you can't read it because it's it's in Latin shorthand. That's why. It's not so much that their handwriting is bad. So you see something and it'll say like T2 tab PRN. And like for me, it's like, oh, take two tablets um, twice a day as needed. But no it's all like way. Latin shit. Yeah, exactly. That's that's why people look at doctor's prescriptions and like, how do you read that? It's Latin. That's amazing. I, I, you know what? I have spoken to 
doctors, uh, dentists, and whatnot. Mm-hmm. No one ever explained to me that way. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the secret. That's crazy. Thank you for that, by the way. Of course. After graduating, what did you do? Did you go straight to uh, join the workforce or you went home? Um, I My last year of school, we have what they call rotations. And I had signed up to do management rotations because I specifically wanted um, to like learn a little bit more about operations. I knew at this time I did not want to be a clinical pharmacist. Um, <laughs> all the love for my clinical pharmacists out there. But it just it just was not how I wanted to like you know, grow my, my career. So I signed up for, um, to shadow someone who was, uh, a district, uh, supervisor who again had a group of 20 pharmacies in the Kansas city area. And I spent six weeks with her absolutely loved her job. I'm like, how do I become you one day? And so they like gave me an offer, um, to sign on with them right after graduation. And so I graduated and I started working for CVS, uh, right away. And, yeah, I think I think it was like six six months later or something. I got my first manager job. So yeah, wow, quite powerhouse. <laughs> I read something that you started a company in Zimbabwe or a website yeah. called Impact Pharmacy. Yeah. Oh man, we're going there. Yeah. So this is when I I thought initially I wanted to definitely try to go back to Zimbabwe after graduating. So I spent the first few years after graduating trying to figure out, I don't want to go work for someone else, but how do I start something of my own? So the idea with Impact Pharmacy was that you, um, we had this pharmacy that was built in Zimbabwe, that was built in Harare, and we would offer delivery for prescriptions. Um, The patient had to be a patient in Zimbabwe, seen by a doctor in Zimbabwe, but when they took their prescription, we could outsource medications from literally anywhere in the world because there's some medications that are hard to find. Um, But in addition, you could also um, have like your relatives because so many of of Zimbabweans rely on their relatives abroad to like support them and take care of them and send them money. Um, They could pay for the prescriptions online, like on infopharmacy.com without, instead of sending money through Western Union or anything else. And then we would just deliver that medication directly to the patient's home. So I did that for two years. Um, I want to say all while I held a full-time job here because I didn't have venture capital funding. So I was literally like paying for the upkeep of this and people's salaries and all kinds of stuff from like working myself crazy. but yeah, so I, I did that. But I think one, I just burnt myself out, I think, and as, as one. But secondly, I got frustrated because Zimbabwean, um, like the law is so archaic and it was just so hard to be able to like get things going or get things like passed. Um, mm. You try to order certain medications and the amount of like, like just red tape you'd go through to try to get a cancer patient their medication over two years, it just burnt me out of trying to change the system and trying to change the law and trying to advocate and do all of that stuff until I was like, you know what? I need a break. I can't keep this going, especially also with an economy that was completely unstable, which didn't help. So as much as I had the passion, I decided I'm going to table this for now. And maybe at a later day, that might impact pharmacy might come back to life, but not right now. Mm-hmm. That's unfortunate. But I hope in the future it happens. I want to mm-hmm. ask you, How's Western medicine being accepted in Zimbabwe? And are there still like shamans? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think, um, I think for the most part, 
it's hard to say because like the, the country is so diverse, right? So I think in parts of the country, it's definitely well accepted. But I think what you'll find though with your general population, it's so not like your upper class or anything, your general population try, tend to try both. You'll try like whatever your traditional medication is, but if it's really dire and there's something else, then you'll try that as well. But you also have a subsector like my mom, um, she works in a community where she's always telling me a lot about like, I guess, similar to what's happening in the U.S. as well, where you have like kids who are dying of things like measles and like hmm. completely preventable. These vaccines for that that have worked for so long. But again, people are just like, oh, I don't know about Western medicine. I don't want to get this. And you end up with outbreaks, especially in communities where people like live in clusters, like it's so easy for that stuff to spread. And so you also have a subset of that. So I don't know, I think it's probably a mix, like some populations definitely buys into Western medicine, others completely don't. Um, But I think the healthy middle is somewhere in the middle, right? Like where you do like do your research and figure out like, you know, what works well for medications. But I think there's definitely something to be said about um, not just like whether it's Zimbabwean, but just like Western medicine, like um, Eastern medicine, or anything else. Like I think there's room to be able to say, hey, like we might not have the same scientific studies to show exactly how this works. And I might not be able to tell you what receptors it works on and like how it's going to get like cleared. But it's not to say that any of that stuff doesn't work. Mm. Right. And I think there's room to be able to kind of within reason, like find out what the right form of treatment is for you um but also if you can talk to your pharmacist so you don't mix stuff you're not supposed to be mixing (laughs) (laughs) make sure you don't take cyanide (laughs) right there you go well something that'll change into cyanide (laughs) exactly going back to the u.s what are the things you learned as a non-american black living in america oh oh man um i guess like the biggest thing when I think of just race, right? Like outside of like all the little things is growing up, I never thought for a second that I would be treated differently or maybe I wouldn't get a job or people would think less of me because of my color. Because like I said, everyone around me was exactly the same, right? Like they were all black. So no matter what job I thought I wanted to do or like who I wanted to be, like my I never really thought my competence would ever be questioned because of color. And I think kind of moving into the U.S. and like starting to like see some of that um, like unspoken um, like current just made like it's probably like the biggest thing of like learning. I guess race is a thing and not always, but sometimes people will judge you because of your color and people will make decisions for better or for worse because of that. Um, And it's just something I never had to contend with when I was growing up. Mm -hmm. Have you ever been called the N-word? Um, not to my face. Um, yeah, not to my face. Uh, but again, I think sometimes when you have friends and so forth, like you'll you'll hear maybe of things that have been said like behind your back or in other places. But yeah, not directly to my face though. How do you react to that? Because again, you said you grew up not knowing what that means, and then now it means something. Yeah. Um, man, I think it's a journey. Uh, and I don't know that I necessarily have figured it all out. Um, I think the biggest thing in dealing with this or anything in life is sort of like, um, learning to be sure of yourself and like what affects like your drive, right? I think there are times where I'd be a lot more affected 
by one thing or another, or certain things would deter me from moving ahead. Um, and I'll just start to, I don't know, maybe that's where some of that imposter syndrome comes in from now when I didn't have it as a kid. Like, you know, and that might, you might have just been my therapist right now. I might be getting in a hot moment as we're talking. Um, but not to say that, like, you know, it excuses anything, but I think like that having a, a solid sense of self and a solid core is probably the most important thing um, mm. in trying to kind of figure out how to navigate the world, regardless of what it is you're trying to go, get through. Mm -hmm. Well said. 2019 was a tumultuous year for all of us. How about you? How did your 2019 go down? Oh, man, <laughs> that is quite the year. Um 2019 um, is when I decided I was going to quit my job at CVS. I was burnt out. And at least I thought I was just burnt out. But I think it was also when all the social justice and everything else was happening. And we had a president who was not coy about like comments about race or bigotry. <laughs> and um, yeah, it's actually my book, Send Her Back, is, is in part titled to an event that happened in 2019. Because that's when I like sitting at home and I'm watching this crowd of like mostly white people at a U.S. presidential rally chanting, send her back to a black African woman. And I remember sitting back and being like, what the heck is going on with America? Like, and I have lived in Iowa too, by the way. So, but this was still like, oh my gosh, like I, I, I can't believe this. And you were starting to see a lot more of that bigotry just become commonplace. And I decided for the first time, I didn't take a break when I graduated, the first time in my life, really probably since I'd started kindergarten, I'd always been like going on to the next thing. I'm like, I need some rest. And I mm. took time off. That's where I wrote most of this book, just so I could process what was going on in the world, process how far I'd come, try to figure out what my next chapter was. Um, so yeah, I mean, it was, it was both a really hard year for me, but a very necessary one. And one where I, again, this book would not exist if some of that hadn't happened. And if I hadn't gotten to a point where I really felt like I can't live in America anymore, I need to go away. Um, yeah. Hmm. You said you bought a one-way ticket to Cape Town, South Africa. I did. Why did you choose South Africa? Yeah, so South Africa was like my first stop, but it was just more so Cape Town. I'd, I've always wanted to spend time in Cape Town. Um, I think I'd been when I was really, really young, um, but I'd never really spent a lot of time. And it was, it's like Zimbabwe is right next to South Africa. So it was really close to home. So Cape Town was my first stop because I wanted vacation, but vacation a place where a lot more people looked like me, where I felt like I was a lot more free and I could still do all the things I loved, right? I could still have the beach. I could still have hiking. Um, I could still have lots of rich culture and history. There's like wine country there as well. So it just felt like the perfect place. The weather's great uh, for me to start. So I started there. And then after spending time in Cape Town, I decided I was going to go back home. I hadn't. So what's crazy is my first four years are so broken, so poor. I didn't go home for four years. I didn't see my family for four years after I moved from Harare. Like literally didn't see my family for four years. And then after that, like when I would work because I had like a regular day job, if I was going, I was going for like two weeks at a time and coming back. And I wasn't going very often. And I felt like, I mean, so much had changed. Like my older brother had gotten married. Um, I had a new niece and nephew. Like there was just so much going on and I like had never met them. And I decided, you know what? I need to go home and I need to just spend an extended amount of time. So Zimbabwe was my next stop. Um, and then again, other places in Southern Africa, like went to Mozambique and like a whole bunch of other places. But 
I just, I think, wanted to be in a place that felt a little bit like home. Hmm. What were you doing when you were traveling? Were you just literally just being a tourist? Like uh, most of it is, like I said, is when I wrote my book. So I was being a, I was being a tourist, um, but I would also sit back and just think and reflect and try to process. So it's like, it's so crazy to think I went from Zimbabwe to Iowa to this job to like, you know, Kansas City, then San Francisco. And I, and then I tried to start this business and I was like doing that while working another job. Like I had gathered so much rich experience and then the U.S. is going through this crazy political time but I'd never really taken time to sit back and think about that or to process. And mm. this felt like the first opportunity I was getting to actually be able to process. Mm. When did you go back to the U.S.? And why did you go back after all the craziness? COVID, COVID hit and borders were going to close and I needed to decide where I was going to be. And I'm like, I'm going to need to get a job again and start working soon. I don't have that much money saved forever. <laughs> so I'm like, okay. Let's go back. So that was that was the big thing. So it was COVID. So yeah. if it wasn't for COVID, you would have stayed? Probably longer. I mean, I hope to take um, a full year off, but it ended up, you know, not being quite as long. But yeah, it probably would have been longer. Hmm. Goddamn COVID, eh? <laughs> yeah. But then again, you would have never wrote your book. Well, I wrote it during COVID. So I think I, my book would have still been around because I, I was writing it while I was on break. So the book would, would still have been happening, like whether COVID had happened or not, because I was already writing on my break. But do you think COVID amped that up, like help? Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. Especially the editing part, because then now I was, I mean, it took me, I want to say like two, three months after coming back to kind of find a job that I felt like would be a good fit to get back into and a lot of the other editing of the stories and really fleshing them out happened during that time so yeah hmm. i don't know if you actually mentioned the book name it's send her back yeah it's called send her back because it's a short story collection the nomenclature and short story collection sometimes is and other stories so it's called send her back and other stories uh which is just kind of publishing lingo for short story collections mm -hmm. why did you choose to do a short story collection rather than a novel because i wanted to tell multiple stories so i have people who just lived in the u.s just moved like don't know the first thing seeing snow for the first time i have characters who are so unsure of themselves and who they are i have well-formed characters i have single mothers i have people who are thriving and doing all kinds of stuff i have um you know like characters who are figuring themselves out and 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 uh trying to figure out how to make things work in, in the U.S. and I, I wanted to be able to tell stories from all of those angles and usually when you have a novel you're sort of sold into one character and you, and of course you can have multiple things happen to them over the course of their life but I really just wanted to tell like these short snippets but really poignant of like what the immigrant experience could be from multiple angles and from like whether that's multiple angles of how well someone is doing or like how sure of they are of themselves. Um, yeah. Hmm. I was actually, this podcast was actually originally a short story collection. I, oh, really? Yeah. I was writing a story, short story collection about immigrants. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Is that ever going to see the light of day? I don't know. <laughs> Well, you know, there's Mukana Press. We'd love mm. to read it. And we published just authors from underrepresented communities. 
Thank you. I appreciate that. I'll think about it. That means a lot to me. I have, I think, seven or nine stories ready to go. Oh, my gosh. Okay, you got to let us read it. I mean, the thing with me is, like, I like there's so much from underrepresented voices, but not just voices for the sake of voices, but voices that are passionate about what they do. You have a mm. podcast, which is not easy to run. You're trying mm. to figure out people's schedules, and you've been sticking to it over I don't know how long. If that doesn't say passion... I don't know what else does. So you know those stories have got to be full of passion. They've got to be like some real soul in that as compared to someone who's just like, yeah, who knows? Like, this is a topic that you're actually actively working on. So I don't know. There might it be means, something uh, there. Thank you. I appreciate that. I mean, I'm not Stephen King or anything. You know what I mean? Like, I, uh, yeah. but... And- <laughs> Just to add to that too, something that Mukana Press specifically does is we look for stories that are not fully polished because it's so hard to be able to get into the publishing world, especially mm. for like writers in Africa who don't have the resources, who don't necessarily know like what is industry standard and what's expected. Um, and a big part of it was we wanted to find those diamonds in the rough, the ones where might not be quite Stephen King, but <laughs> good enough. And with the right editor, the right editing, the core of the story can really shine and become, you know, like a bestseller anywhere else. So. I'll, I'll pre- I'll, that <laughs> makes my heart go big. I mean, I appreciate it. I'll I'll think about it. I'll edit it out more. And um, maybe I have enough courage to send you one story. Oh, that, that would be great. I would love to. Thank you. I appreciate that. So why did you decide to write fictionalized stories instead of, yeah. you know, real real people? Um, I think I wanted, I've always loved creative writing. So I, I write a lot in general, but even when I was a kid, like my mom and like my first grade teacher would tell stories about how they'd be like, practice your handwriting and write like on my way to school. And like, you had to just write four sentences about what you saw on your way to school. And I would have these elaborate stories about like my house burnt down and I got like bit by a dog and they'd be like, Menashe. but there's something about the creativity in stories where you can still tell truth but evoke emotion in a way that you want to. It's sort of like your world is not constrained anymore if it's fiction. So almost mm. everyone like who reads my stories are like, are these fiction? These read like real stories. Like, are you sure this? Because I try to make that emotion really shine through. But if I were to only write nonfiction, I might not have as much about, I don't know, even though I've had experiences with like, and friends in my community who are single moms, like I, if I'm writing just about, my own experience or if it's like memoir then you sort of neglect all of these other stories for people who have these stories want to tell them but they're not writers or if they do they might never submit their work mm. <laughs> to dig on you <laughs> uh, <laughs> but like and i wanted to make sure that like all of those stories um are told so yeah mm. beautiful who did you base the characters from the book yeah, um, a combination of like either stuff that I knew in my community or sometimes I didn't necessarily, it's, it's funny the way I write, sometimes I'll start with a plot in mind, sometimes I start with a character in mind. Um, and when I start with a character in mind, I know exactly who she is. So I have this story called Soro and I knew I wanted a story, this like badass woman who's like super confident and like doesn't care whatever's going on around her, doesn't care that she's an immigrant or people think of her as a woman of color. She just does her own thing and she's going to trample all over you if she needs to because she's that unapologetic. And it's just like, I'm not going to try to be the good kid here. Like I'm going to do whatever it takes to get in my way. So I knew I had her but I had no idea what her story is or where it was said or what her circumstances were, but she sat with me for a while. 
And then in other places, I knew just because, uh, for example, like there's so many Zimbabweans, especially because of the economy, the economic um, downturn, that I wanted to write a story about that. Like there's so many people who are burdened with taking care of their families and they love their families so much, but the toll that it takes is just way too much. And so I just wanted to be in a place where um, I, I could tell that plot, but I didn't know who the character was or the circumstance she'd be in or like, you know, so yeah, sometimes I'll, I'll start from like a plot standpoint and other times I start from a character. So it's not always necessarily like the inspiration is something in my community. It, it could just be a topic um, that mm. then turns into a character. I like that. I, I, I do the same thing. Sometimes it's a story and then I'll work back or sometimes mm-hmm. a character and then I'll move and then I'll just add the details. Exactly. Yeah. Mm. What's, what's the hardest part of writing a book? Editing. I Without hate a editing. doubt. Like <laughs> it's, it's editing. I don't know how many times you go through edits and you have to like work through something. You start with the bones. The fun part is like coming up with the characters and the storyline and mm. putting it all together, but getting it into a place where it's polished, where like your prose is good, where there's enough detail, where somebody reads it, they get exactly what you're saying and the nuance and culture without bogging them down with too much detail and explanation. Like that whole balance is by far the hardest thing. Mm-hmm. I completely agree. That's the work. Yes, that is the real work. Because writing, like you said, creating the characters, creating the story, that's the fun part. You can exactly. just do whatever you want to do. Yeah, exactly. But then it's editing and it just bogs you down. Yeah. Was there a moment that you almost stopped finishing the book? Um. Yeah, I mean, the funny thing too is I didn't even know that it was a book initially. Mm. Um, I joined the San Francisco Writers Workshop and every week you would bring in a piece and you'd read it and then people would give you like feedback and critique it and I would just write like a piece each time and get critique and over time I was like wait a minute there's something here you know and like when I went on this break I think I had like four stories written already and of course there was going to be a theme in hindsight I'm like I'm a black immigrant woman of course that's what my themes are about (laughs) so it could be a happy story about like doing great or it could be a story about finding a place in the world or it's a story about I don't know like something as silly as how much I hate the snow like but of course, there's a theme. And so when I realized that, oh, wait, there's a theme here, I started to do that. Um, I think the editing piece was definitely the part that made me feel like, I don't know if this will ever be like ready, right? Like, because you're like, I love the bones of it, but the amount of work it's going to take to get this ready. And even like, I didn't even finish the editing then, right? Like, I, even after that, I got a new job that I loved and I was starting to like get back and trying to ramp. And when you're trying to do that, that's just, completely different right mm-hmm. so yeah i think the editing part definitely had had mean times where i thought this might never see the light of day <laughs> did you ever think of hiring an editor oh i did i totally did i had multiple editors <laughs> I, there's no way you can do it on your own just no way i think if you're going to do it well especially when you're writing the way i do you you need beta readers you need people who know what they're doing so you need a like a developmental editor who will help like just kind of make you think. And I think the best editors, like I love my editor so much, especially my developmental editor, because she just asks questions like, oh, this is intriguing. Tell me more. Or like, um, well, what is she doing? Is she sitting while she's doing this? Is she standing? Is she like, oh, like, oh, I can't quite see the scene around here. Hmm. So she's not like telling you what to write. She's just like 
poking at your imagination on a story that you already have. So you start to build on the bones around that. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, but yeah, I had that editor and then I had like a copy editor who'd go through like the pros and kind of how stuff reads. And then of course you have your proofreaders after and all the way through, I had lots of beta readers just so I can get like initial reaction to a story. And then I could clearly see that one's a hit, that one's not a hit probably scratched three stories that were originally supposed to be part of the book, didn't see the light of day, added two more. So like, yeah, like you, if you are thinking of writing, don't even, it's not even a question to anyone out there listening, whether you need an editor. Yes, you need an editor. (laughs) How proud were you when you finished the book? Oh, so proud. And especially now that it's actually out. I think that's the, that's the relief part. Like, man, this is done. Like, and it's out in the world and it's getting reviews and really good reviews. Mm. And I'm just happy and so proud that it's finally out in the world. I'm hoping to read it. Apparently I'm going to get a copy. Thank you, yes. by the way. I, I can't wait that. to get a copy. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to, I can't wait. Um, you alluded to this, the Mokana Press. Why mm. did you start Mokana Press? What's the goal? Yeah. Um, So I'd gotten a couple of publishing offers, mostly from small presses. And the more that I sat with these small presses, the more I realized that I kind of didn't want to be bound to their contracts. And not to say that the contracts are necessarily bad. It's like standard publishing stuff, but it's just, I don't know, it's just not necessarily what I wanted to do. And most of them, especially the small presses, the more you looked into them, it's like, oh, this is a small team of like five people. And they have like all the people that have the right um like strength to be able to make it work so i ended up being able to the difference between this and like impact pharmacy i think is like we actually got funding right like thankfully being in silicon valley we have funding does not have to come out of my pocket (laughs) go do this and do it well without petty pitching without worrying about marketing without worrying about like all of like can i afford an editor like we could just do all of that Hmm. um and then just hire the right experts to be able to take on everything but in addition i really just I think I used to read a lot of like Western literature when I was a kid. It's just what was available to me. And once I started getting into college, I was reading stories from like minorities from all over the world. And there's so many rich cultures and so much that was untold. Hmm. And it, it just brought something alive in me. And I was like, I want more of these stories. And even now, I don't think that enough of those stories have been told, uh, which is why when we started Makana Press, we were like, okay, this is going to be only authors from traditionally re- underrepresented groups. And we're not going to compromise on that, no matter how great a manuscript is. And even if we think it could sell millions, if it's not part of this core, it's not what we're about. Like, we want to amplify those voices. And yeah, like I said, looking specifically for Diamonds in the Rough, for maybe authors that would never have been published if Mukana Press didn't exist. Hmm. Actually, that's one of the questions I want to ask. If there's a book that was written by a quote-unquote white man, mm-hmm. and it's well-written... Mm-hmm. We're talking about like the next Jen Steinbeck over here, you know? Mm-hmm. Would you be willing to publish it? Absolutely not. No. Let that go on record today. If Mukana <laughs> Press ever does that at any point, pull out this interview and say, but you say that we believe that to our core. That is not to say that that book shouldn't see the light of the world. It should. And I'm sure it'll sell well. You know what? I might even buy the book and read it. I'm not saying I'm not going to support it. It's mm. just our mission is underrepresented voices that's why we exist um and 
if we're going to put resources into anything, I would rather put resources into people that someone else wouldn't have put resources into. If the book is that great, someone else will put resources into it. It's not going to die because mm. of that. But for some of the authors who are publishing, their work might die if we don't put the resources into it. Why is it so important to you that make sure that these voices doesn't die? Um, I guess just being a minority myself, it's even weird for me to even call myself that given how I grew up now. Um, but these are stories I wish I could, like I wish when I picked up more books, I could see myself in these books. Mm. Um, I wish I could see my community. I wish I could see more family. And I, I've heard so many writers say this and I'm definitely no exception because I grew up with these stories of like, you know, um, like white characters. When I first started writing, a lot of my characters were also like white characters, not mm. because there's something in the in a child's brain that says like white people belong in books. And even some of the things that I'm I've come to realize now, I'm still learning and growing. But if I had read like someone else going through the same thing and kind of seeing how that character like processes it, there's something about like being an outsider looking in to a situation that gives you a perspective that's very different from being the one that's in there. And I think there's something about books that allows people to see themselves and be able to maybe make different decisions. Um, but also I want those who maybe don't identify with any of those minority groups to read those and hopefully, if nothing else, just become more empathetic over time because of this. Mm -hmm. I want to ask you, this is a topical question, but you know The Little Mermaid, the new one? Yes. Uh -huh. What's your opinion about that? Oh my gosh, I think it's the best thing ever. And mm -hmm. you know, these videos that were going viral of these little girls being like, she's black or she's brown like me. And that's why representation matters so much. Like, and and I say this again, like representation matters not only in like, the, it's, it's both ways, the positive and the negative. Like I talked about like watching this crowd of white people chant, send her back to a woman I don't know who, we have largely different backgrounds, but she's a black African woman. And I saw them chant send her back and I was represented there. And that affected me and like a lot of what I did, right? Like the course of my life, how I felt and like just the downward spiral there. And representation in a positive sense does the same thing. It opens up your mind. You have more possibilities. I'm like, it's a fictional character, people. Like, I don't know why everyone's so mad about this. Like <laughs> mermaids can whatever, they can be green if we want them to be. Like, I don't know why it's such a big deal that they cast like a black character. It's a fictional character. So, mm. It's yeah. so funny because everybody's freaking out about this. But in the Avengers, uh, the um, what's the name of the character? Uh, Samuel L. Jackson's character? Yeah. In the Avengers, that's originally a white man. And now, like, no one said anything because he's Samuel Jackson. He's the coolest mm -hmm. guy ever. Isn't that, like, people are There's a weird, double standard yeah. somewhere. Yeah. And I like what you're saying there about the representation because I just had recently a conversation with quote-unquote, a white woman, <laughs> saying, oh, I don't understand why there's different emojis, different shade of skin emoji. I'm like, because it's nice, you know, it's re yeah. we're represented. I'm like, exactly. I don't know, why, why not just use the yellow one? <laughs> <laughs> and that's why, like, some things you can't explain. Mm, I, so and this is the best I, I did, okay? I said, well... You would not understand because all your life you're represented. Ooh, so true. So true. And that is so powerful. And I think that's part of why too. And I hope that women like her pick up my book. They see 
they sort of go into the heart and mind and everyday life of someone who's completely different, see how they make decisions, the little things they have to contend with. And then they can maybe have a, a, a much better understanding of like what not being represented looks like or feels like, because otherwise they will never know if they don't pick up a book like that or like talk to somebody who can like maybe like walk them through. But the cool thing with characters is they let you into their deepest, darkest secrets where somebody that maybe, you know, from work or like a friend might not, right? Uh, especially if they feel like you wouldn't understand. And that's the power of fiction. It's the power of being able to completely let you into like all these little crevices and like every single thought process and see how that then makes a character make decisions and how their life turns out because of that. Hmm. Well said, well said. I think we're getting there. But before we close out, one more question. Yeah. Do you have any message for that broke little girl that wants to be <laughs> cool, but she couldn't because she's poor? <laughs> oh, man. Um, ah, I think the biggest thing, kind of going back to what I was saying with identity of like, what matters the most i think so many times you spend so much time being defined of like what you have and what you don't have and learning to find that inner confidence first is and realizing that there's so much that's cool about you despite like i don't know the new shoes or like being broke or not finding something not having something um but again that's that's an easier thing said than like experienced um for kids but again hopefully if they see more representation like that then they realize they don't necessarily need to have these things per se to be cool they can be inherently cool um that's one but also just hang in there life will get better like right like keep working keep like at some point things will turn up um again something i love to do with my fiction sometimes where just because that's where character is now it doesn't mean that's where they have to stay right it's it's a dark time but you turn the page and the next story it's a great life and this next character is doing great even though it alludes to the fact that maybe it hasn't always been great so that also gives us hope that things can turn around Wise words from a wise woman. Again, Monashe, thank you for coming on the podcast. I really do appreciate it. Thank you. It's such a pleasure getting to chat with you. Amazing. Have a good evening. Thank you. You too. Bye. Bye. Again, Monashe, thank you for coming on the podcast. I really, really do appreciate it. Thank you, listeners, for listening. This is Aaron Del Yosa for An Immigrant's Life. I'll see you guys later. <laughs>